Hello, welcome to Raising Me. This is where we take parenting challenges to the experts for advice to help us navigate all those tricky situations that no one really taught us how to handle. I'm your host, Adrian Stein. I'm also picking my jaw off the floor after looking at the price of college. Quick story here, went to visit some family in the Midwest over the summer and thought, you know, while we're here, let's take a tour of one of the colleges with my daughter, who's, she's in high school, she's a sophomore, so this is a bit early, but it was like, hey, while we're here, great school, this is the first tour we'd ever done. Beautiful campus. I mean, I, I joked with my husband, I was like, I feel like we're at a country club for students. It was, it was awesome. And then when the tuition part of the presentation came up, I was like, wait, what? That's for all four years or nope, just one. Of course there are scholarships and grants and all the things, but holy cow, college costs are so different from when we were in school. It's sticker shock. So if you are feeling overwhelmed or underprepared, we have got you covered today. Myla Tappan is great. She is the College Access and Outreach Manager at the Finance Authority of Maine. And her job is to help people like you and me navigate getting our kids off to college with our sanity and our bank accounts still intact. So if you're worried, maybe it's too late to even get started, you're gonna see that is not true. You can go easy on yourself and we're gonna figure this all out with Myla today. Myla, thank you so much for being here with us today. And you're coming to us not just with professional experience and helping families navigate this college experience. You also have a personal experience. You've put two boys through school. Yes, I think that was really a huge thing for me because I've done this my whole life professionally. And it's one thing to talk about putting your kids through school. It's an entirely different thing when you're the person doing that. You know, I really understand so much better now all of the emotions that go with trying to figure this all out. So I think that's just really enhanced. And many of us at FAME are in that situation. And I just think it's really enhanced the work that we do. And we really want parents to know that we're here to support them in all sorts of ways, including just that emotional piece, if that's helpful as well. Right. There's probably a lot of excitement and a lot of nerves. And I, I can think anxiety too, when you actually start looking at the price tag associated with going to college uh, these days. This is not the same kind of price point uh, when you or I or a lot of our listeners went to school. So talk to us a little bit about what on average we can expect to pay when it comes to, to sending our kids off to school. Yes, costs can range anywhere from like $4,000 for tuition fees here in the state of Maine, free if students are in the classes of 20 to 23, all the way up to like $80,000, which I know just seems unimaginable. But what we want people to know is that we don't want people to focus strictly on the sticker price. One of the most important things to keep in mind is that there is financial aid available. So it's really that net price that we want people to focus on. But that being said, just to kind of put it into context, I graduated from the University of Maine in 1988. At that point in time, tuition fees were about $1,500 a year. I could, I could work in the summer. I waited tables. I could make that in a summer pretty easily, to be honest with you. Now, at most of the University of Maine system schools, tuition fees are in the nine dollars to $10,000 range. 
So, you know, it's not the same. Students can't just go out, work really hard in the summer, have a couple of jobs and necessarily afford all of this because then they've got room and board and books and all of that on top of it. So it's a very different world than it was, I think, for, for many of us when we went to school all those years ago. It feels so overwhelming. And the idea of a, a child, a, not child, young adult graduating with uh, debt, potentially over $100,000 is mind boggling. And so today we just want to talk about just getting started and and specifically for anybody who might be thinking, did I wait too long to do something to help my child? And, and frankly, it doesn't matter what the reason for the delay, but can we talk about just the consequences of not doing something, No, even if your child is already in high school? Right. Well, the good thing is, is that if you haven't done anything, it's not too late. So one of the things that we've put together is this pathway for affording higher education. So we have these five steps in our path um, that we think if people can focus on those to a great extent or even a little bit, it's really going to make paying for higher education much more affordable. So, you know, always great when people can start really early, but it is never too late to start thinking about this. Even if I have a child in high school right now. Even if you have a senior in high school, um, there are still options available. So one of, we have the five pathways. So one is savings. So we're going to talk about savings. We're going to talk about getting financially fit, having the chat, building an affordable list of schools, and then comparing financial aid offers. Let's start with savings. Yeah, let's start with savings. So what is that? What exactly does that look like? Well, with savings, if people can start early, that's always best. The earlier people can start, the better. But what I want people to know is that it absolutely is never too late. And the other thing I want people to know is that the goal is not to save everything to pay the, the bill with that savings. The goal is to have savings as one of many pieces that people are going to use to pay for higher education. So we really like this idea of a piecemeal approach to pay for college, having savings, having merit aid, having regular need-based financial aid, earnings, and all sorts of some of the things we're going to talk about today. So savings is just one of those pieces. So please try not to get overwhelmed by the fact that you can't possibly save as much as you would like to, but instead know that any savings that you have is going to make a big difference. The other thing I think I want people to know is that savings is not going to undermine financial aid eligibility. That's a great point. I wanted to hit that with you because obviously financial aid is really important uh, for a lot of families. So the savings account, even a 529, obviously that's very popular in the state of Maine. Those aren't going to impact? Well, the way that the federal formula works, and that's what most schools use to determine eligibility for their own money, and all schools use that to determine eligibility for federal financial aid, it's a public formula. So we know exactly how it works. And many families, those earning, for instance, less than $60,000 a year, typically don't have to provide any assets on the FAFSA um, going forward. And even families who do have to provide asset information because they make more money than that are going to find that the assets have very little impact on their financial aid eligibility. It just assumes that only a very small portion of those assets are truly available to pay for higher education. The FAFSA formula is an income-driven formula, as is the other formula that gets used by schools. So the savings is not going to um, typically have any impact. If it has any impact, it's going to be minimal. 
But what it does do is it provides people with so many more options. They're going to feel so much more in control of how this whole process works and what their choices are and how they can afford higher education if they have any savings at all. And again, I just want to just emphasize again, it doesn't have to be a lot. Could it be starting with $20, $50, $100 a month just to maybe it's to help with food costs at college. It doesn't have to be paying in full for tuition. It could be just assisting and helping in whatever way you can so that our kids don't end up with a hundred and whatever thousand dollars in debt when they graduate. That's exactly it. It's really just as one of those pieces, and it can be a very, very small piece. Maybe it's just books. Maybe it's just, you know, like you said, it's, it's some, you know, meals. Maybe it's travel back and forth to school. It's, it's just about having some, any money that is saved, doesn't have to be borrowed and repaid with interest is a win. So even small amounts. And when you start saying, well, we can maybe save some money so that the student borrows $1,000 less over the course of their education, that's going to make a difference when they're out on their own after they've graduated and they're trying to repay these loans. So there's all sorts of different ways to save. Um, in Maine, we do have NextGen 529. That's a great way to save for higher education. We have some fabulous matching grants available to people here in Maine. So I love that option and for people to check out that option. But the biggest thing is just to do something, just to get in the habit of contributing those small amounts and to have the conversation with the kiddos, right? So having the conversation if they're a little bit older and they're working in the summer, uh, what are you going to be doing with the money that you're earning? and dedicating a portion of that at a minimum to go into a savings account for their future, whatever that looks like. And then the other big piece is make sure you bring in all the people around you. So my, my niece is going to be a freshman in college next year. Ever since she's been little, for her birthday and for holidays, we always just gave her a little bit of money to put into her savings account, her college savings plan. I think we need to normalize and, and have it be a good thing that we say to our families and friends and relatives that, hey, Johnny doesn't necessarily need this thing. Some money into his savings account would be a great gift. Just thinking about it in those terms, parents don't need to do this alone. They can bring in those around them. And I have found that people in their lives, like their aunts and uncles and grandparents, love the idea of contributing towards these kids' futures. Yeah, that's a great point. One question I did want to ask on the 529 are there limitations on that as far as how you can use it? Yeah, one of the things I love about 529 plans, and these are federally regulated, is that they're really flexible. So they can be used for tuition, fees, room and board as well, as long as the student's enrolled at least half time, even if they're living off campus, as well as books and supplies and things of that nature. They can be used at in-state schools, at out-of-state schools, at public schools, at private schools. They can be used for bachelor's degrees, associate's degrees, graduate degrees, even certain certificate programs. And they're becoming even broader and even apprenticeship programs in some cases. So I think that most people, when they look at 529s and how they can be used, they are so relieved because they are incredibly flexible. Okay, that's, that's good information. The next step, if you will, is talking about getting sort of yourself financially fit, knowing that, okay, I've got this high school student or a middle school or about to go into high school and college is likely coming or some sort of post, you know, secondary education. What does getting ourselves financially fit look like when it comes to saving for college? 
So if I'm in a situation where, you know, let's just say my kids are eighth grade, ninth grade, and I'm really just starting to focus on this, one of the best things to do is think about, okay, in three to four years, how can I find a way to have there be a little bit more money in our budget, in our family budget? Can we free up some money when we get to be three to four years from now? And maybe that's paying off some debt. Maybe that's resisting the urge to take on additional debt, whatever that might look like for individual families. But ideally, if families can find a way to carve out some of their income when their kids get to the point that they're going to college, then families can use that to to make a tuition payment plan. So what these payment plans allow families to do is just to spread their payments out over a series of months. So for example, you might do a payment plan for the fall, you start in July, you make a a payment in July, August, September, October, and November. And it just allows you, instead of making that one lump sum payment, say in August, they are not loans, so there's no interest charge. There's usually a small enrollment fee, like $35. But just like when we're paying for braces, right? To think about paying for braces in lump sums is really overwhelming and can feel challenging. But when we spread the payments out over a period of time, they can feel a bit more manageable. Now, just like the savings, We're not talking about paying the full remaining balance with a tuition payment plan, but what about if we can do a couple hundred dollars a month and we can do that over the course of several months? Then we start to see, okay, now I can comprehend how maybe I can do this. I have some savings. I have my financial aid. I have this. I have that. All of those things coming together is what's going to make this feel more manageable for families. When you talk about a payment plan, how do you coordinate that through the college? You say, I, I would I would like to pay, say, $500 over the course of this semester. Can you get as, as specific as that? You sure can. So most schools have a tuition payment plan. Um, they contract usually with someone to administer it. And so the ones that I've always participated in, with each of them, what I was able to do is say, okay, I've looked at my budget. This is what I can do. I go online. I sign up for an account. In, in the case, as time went on, they could just take it out of my account electronically on the day of the month that I desired. It just was really, really easy. But I was in control of that, right? I got to set the amount based on what was reasonable for us. And that changed over time. Sometimes I could do a little more. Sometimes it wasn't very much at all. But every little bit helped with getting that bill paid. You also say we need to be having these conversations that can sometimes be uncomfortable uh, with our kids. Frank, conversations about what we as a family can realistically afford. And obviously that is uncomfortable sometimes in many ways. For one, just being parents and wanting to give your kids everything, but also money conversations can be really tough. This is incredibly important. I think parents are so uncomfortable talking about money. Um, I think it's really hard, especially if parents feel like they don't have enough money, that they might be afraid that they're going to disappoint their kids if they're honest about what they can do and what they can't do. But here's the thing. If early on, like before senior year, before the student gets their heart set on a particular school, if families can sit down and have a conversation and just say, look, this is what we can do. We're in this together. Let's talk about what everyone's expectations are. Are my expectations of you as a student? Am I expecting you to search for scholarships and put a a dedicated amount of time into that? Am I expecting you to have grades that might get you a merit offer? What do you expect from me and what can you expect from me? Am I willing to borrow on your behalf and to co-sign loans for you and things like that? 
those are emotional conversations. And I think parents can feel like sometimes they're letting their kids down. But one of the things I just really want to convey to people is that there's all sorts of ways that students can achieve their goals and get that education and that training that they need to reach their dreams. What we just want to be awfully cautious about is that we don't want students to go deeply into debt so that when they graduate, they've got this mountain of debt to repay. And then they're mad at their parents. Like, why did you let me do that? You know, now I'm in a bind. Now I can't buy a house. I can't have kids. I can't do that. So if way before all of that happens, there can be this conversation and everyone can get on the same page and everyone can talk about, okay, there's multiple pathways to achieving your goal. What is going to work for you? I think that is one of the best things that families can do to get this process in a place that's going to work for everyone involved. And I know I'm making it sound a lot easier than it is. The act of the conversation is not difficult. Actually having it and the emotions tied to it is difficult. But you did talk about the repayment. I read that it's about 20 years on average to pay back student loans. If they set it up for around 10, but in reality, it's somewhere around 20 years to repay college costs. Is that what you're finding in the field? It can be, absolutely. So what happens is most of the federal student loans, they have a 10-year repayment plan, but they also have income-based repayments. So if students are maybe not making as much money, they can make lower payments and those will stretch out over a longer period of time. And then some private loans, for example, will have just the great out of the gate, they're going to have a repayment plan of 15 to 20 years. So it can be a really long time. And one of the things I said to my oldest son when he graduated from college, I said, what, what should we be conveying to people? You know, what would be helpful in this realm? And he said, mom, you know, when you're talking about $100,000, it doesn't really mean anything. What's the difference between 100000 or 80000 or 120000 He equated it to concert size. Once you get above a certain number, it's just a lot, right? And said, he said, can we make that more realistic? So one of the rules of thumb that I like people to keep in mind, and it's a very rough rule of thumb, but for every $10,000 that you borrow, you're looking at about $100 a month payment when you graduate and go into repayment. So if you borrow $100,000, you're looking at, let's just broad brush it, about $1,000 a month in a student loan payment. That's a lot of money. And I think students though can get their heads around that. So if they look at, okay, if I go to this school and I need to borrow this much, I'm not opposed to borrowing. I think borrowing minimal amounts to achieve this goal. We know the benefits of getting a higher education and gaining these skills. So I'm not opposed to loans, but it's like anything. We've got to be realistic, just like we wouldn't buy the McMansion if we couldn't afford it, because that would not be good for us in the long run. We need to be thinking about how much debt is reasonable for a student. And it does depend on a variety of factors, including what is their degree going to be in? Are they going to come out of school and be able to make really good money out of the gate? Or is it going to take them years to kind of build that up? That's when we see the students taking 10 to 20 years to repay their student loans. So, you know, these are these are tough, tough conversations, but the benefit of having them earlier before the student is making these decisions, I find it's like anything. You just you know, my son and I he used to go with me when I would go do presentations, my oldest son, and we would just talk about these things in the car so that by the time he got to his senior year, he knew what his dad and I, my husband, what we could afford. So when the financial aid offer started coming in, he could look at them and say, okay, this one's not going to work. Okay, this one might. 
And so it was just so helpful to have laid that foundation. We'll take some of the, the stress out of it on that end to have some of the tougher conversations earlier on. But just thinking in terms of an extra $1,000 a month when you're just starting, no matter what your degree is, that is a lot of money when you're paying rent. Maybe hopefully eventually one day buying a house. It's just, holy cow, you know, it's just wild. One of the things that, you know, when students are going to be going to school, they're going to be offered federal student loans and federal student loans are limited. So typically if a student's going for four years, they're not going to be able to borrow more than 27000 Like that, in my mind, for most people is going to be reasonable. Two to $300 a month payment, probably that's going to work. And I think that's the big piece. And that's why I'm not an all or nothing person. It's finding that middle ground um, to make it more reasonable. I want to talk about finding the right schools. And, and one of, piece of advice is, is building a list of affordable schools. And that doesn't necessarily mean the initial sticker price because there are different scholarships and grants and aid. So let's talk about building that list of schools. So what we really want to focus on is finding schools that are a good fit in terms of the major, are a good fit geographically, are a good fit in terms of size. Because we do want students to be successful. We want them to go somewhere that they can be successful, but we just cannot ignore affordability. So what we want students to do, and one of my favorite places to start searching for schools is the College Board's Big Future website. And there are 4,000 schools in that website. And students can search based on whatever criteria is important to them. But affordability is one of those pieces of criteria that they can use. And basically what students and parents are looking for is schools that can meet whatever need they have or as much of that need that they have. So it's not nearly as much about the sticker price of a school. Instead, it's about how much financial aid can that school provide so that that school is affordable. I honestly am not joking when I say that I have seen students be able to go to Colby for less than they could go to UMaine. Now that's not the case with everyone, but especially for our lower income students, it's really important to really cast that broad net and to find those schools that just have really good financial aid because it really can be affordable to them. And then I would say for middle income families, one of the things that I want them to focus on is merit aid. So especially if you've got a student who's strong academically, you want to find those schools that have really good merit aid that's going to be offered by the admissions office and based on the student and who they are and what they bring to the table. Did you know that the top tier schools, our Bates, Bowden, and Colby's, don't offer merit aid, right? Uh, because all of their school students are really meritorious. But this next step down, the next tier down schools, that's where there's really great merit money because they want those kids that could go to some of these really top, top tier schools. They want to get those kids. So they use merit aid as a way of having those students come to their school because it's much more affordable financially. So it's a great idea for people as they're looking at schools or researching schools and talking to schools to ask the admissions office, do you have aid? Do you offer merit aid specifically? And if so, how do I apply? Is it just my admissions application? So for the students and the parents out there listening, when parents say grades matter, they do, because some of these schools really do have a lot of merit aid that can really lower that, that cost. And ultimately, we have to stay flexible too, right? Try not to get your heart set on one particular 
school. I mean, it's great if that works out, but the reality is there are so many great schools at all kinds of different levels. So it get, it goes back to having those conversations about, in, in addition to money, staying flexible uh, with this the whole plan too. I can't stress that enough. That flexibility is so important uh, because there are multiple pathways. And, you know, I will tell you that with my own son, he did not go to the school he wanted to because he didn't get into his first choice. And the other choices, um, his next choice just wasn't affordable. Now, long story short, fast forward, he went to a different school. He had a great experience as a transfer. He was able to get into his dream school. But what he said to me is, mom, it's amazing how that worked out. That worked out the way that it should work out. But it was because he maybe was not wanting to be flexible, but he was willing to be flexible. And it paid off in the end. And you also say to compare financial aid offers. Tell us a little bit more about what exactly that means. Yes, absolutely. So what's going to happen is in the senior year, typically in the fall of senior year, families are going to fill out their financial aid applications. The FAFSA, the free application for federal student aid is absolutely going to be required by all schools. And then some schools have an additional form called the CSS profile. And what's going to happen is once students are offered admission, um, then the financial aid office will put together a financial aid offer. So every financial aid offer looks a little bit different from one another. They have different information. So they're a little bit tricky to compare. But what we want people to be able to do, and we have a tool for this, and it's on your website, where they can compare costs and financial aid offers. And what they'll do is they will put in the tuition, fees, and room and board, those direct costs for school A. And they'll do that for school B and for school C. And then they'll subtract out the grants and scholarships for each of those schools. And then what they have is what's truly the net price. That's what the school costs. Direct costs minus grants and scholarships is what that is really going to cost the family. And using our tool, they can see that for school A, for school B, and school C. Schools sometimes will send this offer and say, hey, we're going to give you this merit scholarship of $40,000. And that sounds like, oh my goodness, that's got to be a good deal, right? But it's maybe over four years and how much is the school to start with? Instead, if you can just break it down and look at each school, cost minus aid that doesn't have to be repaid, and then do that apples to apples comparison. I'm not saying that people should select the least expensive school. We want students to go where they can be successful. That's really, really important. But I think we need to know going into this what a school is really going to cost. And if people can do this senior year before the student commits to a school, that's really going to make a big difference. What happens sometimes is students get that offer. That's their dream school. They're excited. They commit. And then July comes around and all of a sudden the family is like, "Okay, how are we going to make this happen? So just really taking that time and we can assist with that if if people need any help with that part, part of the process. And on top of the tuition, you're also talking cost of living, though, too. Going to school in, say, New York City is a lot different than going to Columbia, Missouri, where, you know, I went. But, you know, you have to look at the cost of living on top of the the prices, too. Right. Absolutely. So, you know, initially, a lot of students are going to live on campus. So you're going to factor that in. But then if they're going to live off campus afterwards, you know, my son went to school in Boston. It was incredibly expensive, the housing. And are they traveling? You know, are they going to the West Coast? So they need to fly home. And so those are all of the conversations that need to take place and can factor into what's going to work best for that family. Myla, this is so much good information. As you mentioned, we will have these resources 
on our website, which you can find wgme.com slash raising me. Let's leave on one final thought. If there's a key takeaway from all of this information that we got today, what would that be? It is just have that conversation. Just start talking about it. My favorite way to talk about these things with my boys was always to just let's get in the car and let's just go for a ride and let's just talk about it. And we don't have to be face to face, but let's start getting on the same page and let me understand what you expect of me, what I expect of you. So we can just have this nice conversation and lay some good groundwork. And I think everybody can do that. And I think that if families can find a way to do that, they'll look back and say, okay, that that helped us get to where we needed to be. Car conversations for sure. Big, big proponent of that. And I, and I would add to that, it's not too late. Absolutely not. Hang in there if you have had to, to, to delay putting the money aside that maybe you've wanted to for years. Uh, just a little bit helps, just a little bit at a time. And I think that to, to not only be flexible initially, like you mentioned, but to remain flexible. So, you know, maybe there's a plan for the first year. And then the second year, we can look at something different. So I think it, it's it's remaining flexible all the way along. Um, you wouldn't believe how many students transfer, right? So it's just about staying flexible and staying connected, and having those conversations and, and, and reaching out to people like me, because um, we would love to be able to help you with all of this. Myla, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. Anytime. Thank you. So bottom line here, we have got to have these conversations and set clear expectations. That's so true in so many things, especially the most overwhelming and anxiety-producing situations, which college is one of them. Not just the financial part either. Let's not even get into the fact that you are sending a child away from home. I can't even think about it. That's an entirely different episode. But when it comes to paying for college, it is just getting started. Whether you have a toddler or a teenager, a little bit can go a very long way. Like Myla says, any money that doesn't have to be borrowed with interest, that is a big win. Thank you so much for being a part of Raising Me. I'm Adrian Stein. This episode is edited by Megan Littlefield. Please follow Raising Me wherever you get your podcasts. Of course, a positive rating and review is greatly appreciated. That helps others find this message as well. So wherever you are, I hope you learned something new and get to take a little time for you.